you're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome, you're listening to I Might Be Wrong. I am Rich, I am here with Henry. How are you doing, sir? Hello, Rich. Yeah, I'm well. I'm busy trying to scatter cushions around my computer screen because I've moved downstairs in the heat, Ah. but that means I'm in a fairly echoey room, so... I'm propping cushions up to the left and the right of me to try and deaden the sound. It's the the peril to doing a podcast, I guess. Fingers crossed our listeners won't even notice. How are you doing? You well? Yeah, mostly. I'm a little frustrated. I was trying to get barbecue lit before we jumped on to record, but left myself almost no time. But it is kind of apt because we are going to talk about an artist and an album with a song called Has My Fire Really Gone Out? Oh, brilliant. You planned that. You must have done. (laughs) (laughs) May have been thinking about that for the last three minutes. That's fantastic. So uh, give us the name of this mysterious artist. Uh, He is not particularly mysterious if you are a UK music fan. It's Paul Weller, a.k.a. lead singer of The Jam, The Style Council, The Mod Father. Yeah. All of those things. In British music circles, he's a bit of a, one of the kind of, well, not founding fathers, but he's a pretty big figure. Um, whatever you think of his music he's been right in the heart of it for a very very long time absolutely and is cited as a massive influence by a lot of british rock and indie artists yeah yeah shall i tell people about him for those who haven't heard of him go for it so paul weller is an english singer songwriter and musician he achieved fame with the punk slash new wave slash mod revival band the jam and then had further success with the Style Council before establishing himself as a solo artist with his eponymous album in 1992. He was a principal figure of the 70s and 80s mod revival, often referred to as the Mod Father, and an influence on Britpop bands, according to Wikipedia. Yeah, and I guess, and we're not going to go into the jam, but I mean, they're kind of what, the late 70s, early 80s, they were, they were massive. I mean, you know, that's entertainment, songs like that were just just huge and he's he's a big part of that but um but we're not going down that road are we no i think we should probably avoid talking about the jam because we could be here for hours so i'm going to give a very quick overview of paul weller and then we can uh then we can get into talking about the album which is strangely live wood which is a live album that he released between wildwood and stanley road and i'll talk about why i'm picking this one in a bit but it's an album that is probably one of his least proclaimed yeah so tell us about the man himself paul weller as i said he grew up in that era where punk was really a thing the mods had sort of moved into the background punk was other than proper poppy mainstream stuff it was the sort of the cool currency of British music and the jam emerged into that scene, but then very rapidly moved on. So they, their first album sounds very punky. Second album, less punky start to get these soul and R and B like 50s, 60s R and B, not modern R and B bluesy sounds coming into the mix. And that sort of lost them some interest and some credibility with the punk scene 
but at the time Weller was really getting into more and more of that kind of stuff so he says I'd heard a lot of Motown and Stax when I was a kid but the more well-known end of it on the jam tours we had a DJ called A.D. Crowsdale who ran a 60s club he turned me on to underground stuff and what people called Northern Soul it just blew my mind we we'd already moved on from punk very quickly and by the fifth album sound effects there was a lot of disparate influences and I think that was the point where he broke up the jam because he wanted to do something else. He felt like the jam had achieved all the things that he wanted to achieve and he wanted to do something very different. Style Council then becomes much more pop-centric. So it's almost a kind of poppy R&B sound, not like we'd think about it from the 90s, but certainly from the 60s and the 70s. And then once he gets to his solo work he's even more broadly influenced. So there's there's a more lush sound than the jam, but it's less pop-centric than Style Council. The Hammond organ that's very associated with those jam mid-albums, that's still back in the mix here, but there's more mid-century American soul and blues in the mix. Oh, I love a Hammond organ. <laughs> and, um, he doesn't. Northern Soul, you mentioned it, and just briefly, in my head it's weird because it's kind of come back across the Atlantic from the States into Northern England in the late 60s. And you hear people talking about this movement, which was just up in the North. And if you listen to the sound, it sounds like it's full on American soul music, but it was this, this little kind of microcosm. And it sounds like an amazing part of music to be part of. And some of the bands that have come out of there are amazing, but um, yeah, I, I like it, but I don't really, really know much about it. But anyway, maybe that's one for another time. I don't either, and I do think we need someone else to come in and tell us more about the jam and Northern Soul and all those kind of things, because I'm like you. I don't know very much about it, despite the fact that it's really influenced an awful lot of the guitar music we were listening to in our late teens and early 20s. So what do you mean by that? Well, Paul Weller and the jam and a lot of the stuff that he worked on hugely influenced a lot of Britpop sound and maybe not the really really popular Britpop sound but certainly stuff like Ocean Colour Scene those sort of bands in there totally listening to some of the other albums I had listened to Wildwood and also Stanley Road you can hear things in there that are almost exactly echoed in Ocean Colour Scene's work and there's a lot of those kind of modish indie Britpop bands that I think are the less popular ones but I loved them at the time yeah, I saw Ocean Colour Scene. They were actually the third live band I ever saw at this Glastonbury that I went to. Nice. But you, you're totally right with the likeness to Paul Willett. I mean, they basically copied him. It's pretty much a rip-off, um, but they're very good. I'm a bit of a fan of them. <laughs> oh, me too. I love I love a bit of Ocean Colour Scene. I might throw a track or two onto the uh, playlist for this episode just, just for shits and giggles, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Put on the, the Riverboat song or the day we caught the train. Those two are... Um, always worth listening to absolutely so moving on from paul weller's kind of modish scene when when actually did uh live woods come out when was was it released so he started his solo career in 92 with paul weller he then released wildwood in 93 and then released this in 94 and at the time i was i guess emerging from my enjoyment of pop music just from a purely surface level oh, this sounds nice kind of thing that i i guess was from 
nine or ten years old to maybe 12, 13, 14. And so I was starting to hear more guitar band stuff on the radio. Paul Weller was part of that. He was certainly played in the mainstream, yeah. as far as I can tell. And so when I started to look to explore more of that, I just found a Paul Weller album. And I was buying this with my own money rather than having albums bought for me. I suspect it was Christmas or birthday money, but I remember being in WH Smith and seeing this album and thinking, oh, Paul Weller, I I like him. I know I like him. I'm going to buy that album. And I don't think I even realised it was a live album when I bought it. Did that disappoint you when you realised it was live? Because I kind of, I've got a bit of a thing about live albums (laughs) um, in that I just don't like them. I've got a note about your (laughs) thing about live albums. I just don't get them. I don't think it did because I don't think I had any expectations of at that point what an album should mean. We're talking, you know, 13-year-old me, maybe 14-year-old me, and I'd only owned a handful of albums at this point. And I think there was an element here of really almost having my interest piqued by the fact that this was being played actually live. Mm. you know there's there's that energy that you get just I guess I was very very impressed by artists being able to recreate the intricate things they could do on a recorded album where you might have a number of goes at it tens of goes hundreds of goes depends on who you are versus having to get it right as you go during a live set yeah, that's that's a fair point. And I've just realised while you were speaking that I'm effectively dissing Unplugged in New York by Nirvana, which is one of the greatest <laughs> albums ever made. So I should probably just shut up on all of this. I do think that there are live albums that are recorded and released purely as money-grabbing exercises. And this might well be one of them, but <laughs> it has an energy to it that I really love. And it's different enough I guess to the first two albums even though most of the music is from those first two albums what are the kind of influences because we've kind of gone over his career and it's gone all over the place Mm -hmm. so but where does it sit in that musical spectrum so this is very definitely it's rock influenced by 60s R&B and very American blues but with a very British Northern Soul spin on it. Mm-hmm. There's tinges of psychedelic stuff in here as well. If you listen to it, you'll almost hear the foundations of indie Britpop. Yeah, you can probably hear it, you probably see it in his haircut as well. But um but yeah, I can I can tell that. Yeah, this this album it uses songs from both the first album and Wildwood. But it also uses some covers. So one of the things that I really love, you talk about what's good about a live recorded album. He drops covers of The Who's Magic Bus, Donald Burns, Dominoes, and Edwin Starr's War in here, which just add a little bit of extra sparkle and flavour that you wouldn't get on a, a studio album. Yeah. And actually, I think that sound that he's got, that he's always had, um, that kind of modish sound just does sound better live so i do remember watching watching ocean color scene actually and Mm -hmm. the live stuff blowing me away because it it's got an energy that it's come out of the dance halls and the music halls and of you know you can kind of think of those working men's clubs and 
Yeah, it's all it's all come out of there, and and that type of music has to have carried across to really get people energized. And and I think, and I'm saying this without having listened to this album many times. I've only listened to it twice, but you you can see why this type of a live album would make sense because it does capture that. Yeah, and he's a very skilled musician as well. So everything's very polished. It's not perfect, but it's certainly polished enough to feel really amazing and, and really like a musician at the top of his game. And it's recorded in, I think, four venues across the whole thing, but the majority of the tracks come from the Royal Abbott Hall and the Wolverhampton Civic Hall. So an odd mix of venues in terms of... I've been to the Royal Albert Hall. It's huge and it feels quite, um, what's the word, civilised? Yeah. For a rock gig. Yeah. And then Wolverhampton Civic Hall, I'd imagine I've not been there, is more of a kind of classic, smaller, proper gig venue. Yeah, it's funny. I saw Modest Mouse at the Royal Albert Hall doing a a set and, and it was really weird watching a, a I guess, a rock band play in that kind of place and i the volume wasn't really loud right. and probably for a recording it would be great and if you're sitting listening to classical music that's fine but if you're wanting to listen to rock music i don't know it didn't quite come across that well and i think that's part of it you mentioned classical music the royal albert hall is great for that almost pristine clean almost clinical sounds there's none there's nothing scuzzy about it and yet yeah. This album has some grimy, scuzzy rockness to it, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. And again, for me, this is about timing. So I learned to play the guitar at school because my parents very generously bought me lessons. So I was able to go off and do lessons probably from the age of about 12 through to about 17, 18. I was never particularly good. I was competent by the time I'd finished. But... I think that was part of what I was impressed with in terms of this album was I knew how hard it was to play stuff, Mm -hmm. but to play it every time and get it right every time as you'd have to on a live tour. I think I've almost become complacent about that now, having seen so many gigs and so many musicians. You just, you come to expect it, but at the time, this was so impressive. That's that's a great point, actually. The number of times that you go to a gig and you see you see someone not quite playing as well and you think, come on, you know, you idiot. Play your, your piano or your keyboard the way, or your guitar the way you should do. And and you're right. We you almost assume now, because especially now when you can completely edit tracks and, and cut out any any crap that you just expect quality. Absolutely. And his guitar playing and his voice on here are just fantastic. And the rest of his band, obviously. I, I don't know whether this was a long-term relationship with a band or whether he's just bringing in session musicians, but everything's so in sync in this album. It's, it's really impressive because you and I have both been to gigs, festivals, whatever, where a band is sloppy, ill-prepared, shall we say? Yeah. Drunk. Yeah, and it's shit. You might have fun because if they've got the energy levels up, great, but if it's not got the energy, you can really feel it. Yeah, I'd imagine Paul Weller's got quite a 
a decent phone book. I mean, in yeah. terms of UK rock royalty, he's <laughs> he probably knows most of the the big cheeses. Mm-hmm. He'll have all the contacts. So finding excellent musicians to play alongside him shouldn't be difficult. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that I am a little sad about on this album is that it doesn't include some of the Stanley Road stuff, which I assume he was writing at the time, but probably was too new to throw on a, a live album, even if he was playing it during the sets. And I don't know whether you're much of a fan of Stanley Road. Yeah, I, I actually, I think that era was the, so I'm not a big Paul Weller fan, but the music that um, that I do like of his was from really that, that album. Um, I guess that was probably the most, was it the most f- famous one? I mean, it's got The Changing Man on, which is, right. that was on a compilation album which I had and that's how I got into Paul Weller. So so for me, Stanley Road is the one that is Paul Weller. That's that's what I right. see as his music. And I think that probably was his best known solo album. I love The Changing Man. I think it's it's a brilliant track. It reminds me of the Beatles, that kind of mid point of their yeah, yeah, yeah. their career Absolutely. where you've got that fuzzy opening riff. And then you've got Out of the Sinking, which is great and reminds me of Wings era McCartney. And there's a track called You Do Something To Me on there, which is this beautiful, beautiful piano ballad. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a really good album. Mm-hmm. One that I've never owned. I've only heard the songs played, but it's uh, it does stand up. Yeah. I guess we should mention crowd noise because I know that's something that annoys you on live albums. This doesn't have very much of that. So there's there's some at the start and there's some at the finish and there's occasional snatches of it particularly when he's thanking the crowd after a song but they've sort of kept it low in the mix yeah does that make it more acceptable it does it does i actually i don't mind the occasional bit of interaction it's quite nice when you hear a lone voice kind of yell something Mm -hmm. i'm just randomly thinking back to this modest mouse gig with this one drunk guy from the in the audience just yelling throughout the whole the whole gig literally from song one (laughs) shouting play the cockroach play the cockroach (laughs) and he was yelling it all the way through the gig and if modest mouse were trying to get a decent recording in the albert hall this Uh, guy would have completely fucked it up although if they were you'd hear that as that guy would be like that was me that was me that was me (laughs) yes exactly so so let's go through the tracks what are your standout ones for me i think there's a certain element of tone setting with the first track here and i know we talk about setting the tone in an album but this works really well the opening track is called bull rush and that is played pretty similarly to how it is on the album but then they get into this drifty guitar drums riffy bit towards the end of bull rush and then drift from that into the cover of magic bus which mm. I think sort of blew my mind the first time I heard it. Yeah, is that just because songs one song moving into another is just not something you'd heard before? One song moving into another and also moving into someone else's music, so yeah. dropping into a Who track rather than, you know, if you if you drift into the next track from your set, that's fine, but you've just dropped something else of someone else's mm. in here, that's cool. That is cool, yeah, absolutely. That is not something i'm familiar with right and i'm not entirely sure whether this album reflects the set lists from the time but if it does it's really nicely paced so Mm -hmm. 
that shifts from the sort of high energy first track into a very slinky track called This Is No Time, which has a gorgeous bass line. It's got lovely strings. And then it's alongside that Hammond organ that really tells you you're listening to Paul Weller. Yeah. Yeah. I love a Hammond organ. The more the better yeah. in my, my mind. Uh, Wildwood on here. That's always a highlight. Feels yep. like a real blueprint for some of the better indie that followed in Britpop. Yeah, it's a classic, isn't it? Yeah, particularly when bands were looking for a way to do something a bit more thoughtful and weighty. Yeah, and I think he's um, he's nailed it. I mean, the, this one for me is probably one of my standouts. I, th- I think it's one of my favourites, mm-hmm. and um, and it's nice that it comes across so well on the album, uh, on the on the live album. Yeah, Shadow of the Sun. I got to mention because it really showcases guitar skills. He's got that sort of gruff voice that plays off the music really nicely. It's big bluesy rock. And this for me is like classic. Oh, there's Ocean Colour Scene in terms of the influence that he had on them. Yeah, it is good. That's really all I was looking to call out from the actual album itself. I think it's probably not the most mind-blowing of albums it's not gonna set anyone's world on fire if you've already listened to lots of music but for me as a teenager particularly in my early teens this was something that relit my love of guitar music I'd listened to a lot of that stuff when my parents were playing it as a younger child and then as I said drifted into just listening to stuff like Capital FM and all the pop music that came along with it but this sort of started to spark something a bit more edgy and I think it was safe enough because I didn't like the you know metal and that kind of stuff that some of my friends were starting to get into that was all a bit loud and obnoxious for my taste at that time not anymore but at the time and so this started that journey back. Did it set your expectations as to what a live band would sound like? Uh that's an interesting question. I I don't know if expectations is the right thing. I think it got me excited for the idea of watching live music. Yeah. Because I think there was an element of, particularly at that time, you'd watch things like Top of the Pops and the Chart Show, and even bands that were playing live weren't really playing live in a lot of cases. You'd get some that were, but a lot of them weren't even the guitar bands because they wouldn't let them they'd record earlier in the day and then mime along to it live yep yep and so i think it sort of just got me interested in that as an idea Mm -hmm. yeah no that's cool particularly growing up outside of places that had good gig venues yeah. There was never the option of my parents just taking me to somewhere nearby and listening to some live music. My dad took us to the proms a few times, which was cool, but never anything that was just a scuzzy rock gig. And I guess if you haven't seen him live? I was trying to work this out. I don't think I have. It was one of those weird things where because I've listened to this album so much, I sort of feel like <laughs> I have. But he's Well, he kind of, he does crop up a lot. I mean, he because he's got so many different bands and he does keep just appearing I mean he's that consummate musician where Mm -hmm. he loves performing so you kind of feel like you should have bumped into him because I don't think I have but I feel like I must have done at some point but I haven't I went and had a look through places that I thought I might have seen him live so I wasn't sure if he was at V2000 because Ocean Colour Scene were there and they were great fun 
and that was sort of the tail end of indie Britpop. And so I thought there might be a possibility he was there as big name, that kind of safe big name that you yeah. expect to be at a V Festival. Wasn't at Reading or Leeds when I was there in 020304 and wasn't either of the Glastonbury's I was at. So I don't think that I've seen him live. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'd remember if I had actually seen him live, but I was desperate to claim that I had. <laughs> yeah. But I haven't. I think it would be good to get, good to see him. I mean, his his guitar skills are excellent. He's got this kind of style which is it's super cool. It's very measured. It's very controlled, and it's kind of just you kind of know you're in the hands of a guitar boss. Yeah, and he doesn't piss around and go off like Matt Bellamy does. He just <laughs> he just nails down really straightforward good guitar playing. Maybe if he does thirty year reunion for Stanley Road in 2025 that might be an option I would also assume that gig tickets to go and see him would be like 100 quid ahead so we'll see yeah we'll see I, I would have thought there's a good chance he'll he'll appear again <laughs> he seems to seems to not stop he's still going as far as I can tell yeah doesn't surprise me at all yeah cool I think we should leave it there cool yeah that was uh that was Short good and sweet this week yeah thanks for it that was a that was a, a different different style for this week well thanks for joining us you lot hopefully you've enjoyed a slightly odd selection from me if you have been enjoying the podcast we would very much appreciate if you would rate us give us five stars wherever you can i think it's possible on itunes maybe google podcasts anyway ratings and reviews are very helpful for us as a podcast to continue to grow which we'd like to so cheers yeah thank you thanks everyone Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong.